Voices of the Sacred Feminine, whether you're across town or across the globe. I'm your host, Karen Tate. And you know what? I have been voted one of the most influential women of goddess spirituality. Why? Well, because of this show, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, that's why. Thank you so much for your support and your listener loyalty, each one of you out there. You are an integral part of the Voices of the Sacred Feminine family from wherever you are listening from. And I know you are listening from... Uh, Dubai, from Italy, from uh, red states in the south, Uh, you are listening from down in Mexico City, you are listening uh, from all over the place, and I thank you, thank you, thank you. And please remember, if you haven't already, to hit the follow button on my show page so you will know who my guest is each week. And that cut opening tonight's show was Aphrodite by Diva Haley. It's on her Sacred Alchemy CD. Check it out. A lot of powerful music there. And if time allows, I will play the whole song uh, sometime either at the middle or the end uh, of the show. And uh, here's a word uh, from another goddess of love, Hathor. Uh, Someone sent me this, and you know how those things happen when you're talking about topics and you're curious about topics, uh, then things sort of just manifest? Well, I was having a conversation with a friend a couple Sundays ago about uh, how to protect yourself and how to uh, heal. And um, anyway, this uh, this then showed up in my inbox, um, and I think it's from Ina Kusters Van Bergen of Temple of Starlight uh, over in the UK. She says an ancient Egyptian wisdom text for Hathor, goddess of love in the Egyptian pantheon, says, and I quote, "There is no true protection." except the protection which is granted by the accomplishment of the work of the gods. The only true servant is he or she who is a copper mirror for the unmanifested God, unquote. That is the real meaning of Hathor's mirror. Look at yourself and you develop yourself copying the example of the highest divine and then you meet the goddess of love. I just thought that was interesting and um, probably probably pretty true. You know, the, as we work on ourselves and try to become better people, um, you know, we uh, sort of become reflections or we try to become uh, reflections, if we can, of, uh, of our great mother. So uh, tonight, uh, I have two fabulous women waiting to chat with me and you. Uh, returning to the show to delve deeper is Lorelai Black, a priestess of Aphrodite. She is a cunning woman and a self-described traveler on the crooked path of the witch. We're going to be talking about modern-day sacred courtesans 
comparing it to what we think we might know about the courtesans and sacred prostitution in ancient Sumeria and Babylon and classical Greece. Uh, then second up tonight is Jenna Tellendrew talking about the Sisterhood of Avalon, a real thing, my dear listeners, founded in 1995 and uh, an incorporated nonprofit religious organization. Besides being an archaeologist, author, and having a master's degree in Celtic studies from the University of Wales, Jenna is the academic dean of the Sisterhood of Avalon or Avalonia. Interesting stuff tonight, my dear friends, for sure. But first, uh, a few housekeeping tidbits, uh, especially for the new listeners. Uh, I wanted to share with you that uh, my husband and I went to the Goddess Temple of Orange County last Friday. Um, It was uh, when they celebrated their first Green Man Father's Day, uh, which I don't know whether you've been seeing it on the Internet, but people were talking about this year uh, Father's Day should be called Feminist Father's Day. And uh, I went there with that thought in mind, uh, I have to admit. And, you know, the temple for some time now has been shifting toward welcoming families and on fourth Sundays had been inviting men to the temple. Uh, it wasn't just for women anymore as it was in the in the early days. And these men that have been coming to the temple, you know, it really felt like these are the men of the future, the men with the mentality of being protector, supporter, nurturer. Uh, That's the archetypes uh, encouraged uh, to the men who come there, you know, to be the supporters um, of life. Uh, And during the evening, the men who have helped the temple, well, they were honored. Uh, The men who built Sekhmet's four-foot pyramid throne, the ones who do all the things at the temple, the the priestesses don't have the abilities to do or the money uh, to hire someone to do. But I have to tell you how gratifying it was to hear her story coming from the lips of men. As I sat in the room and listened to one of the men talk about being a devout Christian in his early 20s, to realizing the inconsistencies, to discovering the Divine Mother, hearing him tell how patriarchy has dealt women and the planet a lousy blow. You know, I had goosebumps, and I honestly had to hold back tears. And when I was called up to the mic to give a few comments, I couldn't help but say, these men are the ones we've been waiting for to help us change the world. These are the men who can give women hope as they become our allies. You know, I added to the list of reasons that had been spoken, um, you know, why we appreciate them. Uh, And I said that we love them and appreciate them most when they are encouraging the women in their lives to be the best that they can be, when they are not expecting their women, their sisters, their mothers, their girlfriends, any of the women in their lives to hide their light under a bushel or not trying to control any facet of their women's lives. How gratifying it is to see them working toward an egalitarian partnership with women and how I wish I had T-shirts to hand out to these men, all with the word feminist on it, because they were truly helping us usher in a feminist Father's Day. So I hope I've given you a little snapshot of the wonderful time I spent at the temple last Friday night. And I posted a bunch of pictures on my Facebook page if you're interested in uh, going there at some point and, you know, scrolling down till you get 
to those pictures and uh, checking it out. I honestly think there were more men at that temple Friday night than there were women, and that has got to be a first. So uh, let's see, where am I? Um, Oh, also, uh, starting next month, I will be sharing information about the exciting places we're visiting uh, on the long-awaited trip to visit uh, Goddess Sites of Turkey in May of next year. Uh, It is being planned uh, as I speak to you now. Uh, The tour is for women and men. Uh, The one we hit on the drawing board a couple years ago uh, actually did not manifest, but uh, this one feels different. I think this one is going to go. I hope to have a website up before the end of August. We will most definitely be visiting sacred sites uh, of Mary, Artemis, Aphrodite, and many of the other feminine faces of goddess in Anatolia, as it was once called. And um, I'm told that that translates into land of the nourishing mothers. And aren't they, though? I mean, just look at the Venus of Willendorf. We'll be taking Turkish baths and doing some very exciting stuff during the tour at the sacred sites. Uh, this is the tour where spirituality, mythology, and history all converge. There's nothing like standing in these sacred sites. Trust me, you can read about them, but it's the difference between reading a recipe or tasting the stew. And uh, I just got a wonderful review of my last book. Uh, This is the last thing I will share with you before I get to my wonderful guest, Lorelai, who is patiently waiting for me. Um, I don't often see reviews of my last book very often. Uh, My last book is Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth. Uh, But I did get one just a couple days ago, and the review was very nice, and it made my heart sing. And it's not very long, so I will share it with you. Um, Because, you know, I I was thinking the other day how my books really sort of, um, they sort of punctuate my journey, you know, and this really was where, uh, this, this was where I was at when I was writing that book, you know, I was growing into who I am uh, now. So anyway, this is uh, a review, uh, it's on the Chapel Witch blog uh, by Sheena Kundi, and she said about walking an ancient path, It was with excited anticipation that I waited for my copy of Walking an Ancient Past to arrive in the post. Already an advocate of goddess spirituality, I couldn't wait to read Karen Tate's account of her own experiences on the goddess path. From the opening chapter of the preface, I was drawn in by Tate's analogy of a wounded world in the absence of the sacred feminine, quote, much like a child growing up without a mother, unquote, an endearing start to a heartwarming story of a deeply personal journey with the feminine face of God. Walking an ancient path is a reawakening of the female aspect of the divine that stirs something within the reader to rethink and embrace goddess consciousness as the missing piece of our spiritual, cultural, and political lives that can address the many influences on human conditions around the planet today. Aimed at both men and women of all faiths, the essence of the writing reaches out to all those who have grown disillusioned with mainstream religions and reaffirms that a patriarchal and male-dominated religious system is out of balance with the needs of humanity and has been 
since the suppression of the goddess aspect in spirituality. Tate gives carefully researched reasons for this and explains why. The structure of the chapters, beginning with how to use the book and the explanations of the elemental themes of earth, air, fire, and water sections, provide a comprehensive guide to the reader's seeking to incorporate practical and creative ways of expressing the goddess in their own lives. The author spans her life from a Catholic upbringing, growing up in the Bible Belt of New Orleans, to becoming a goddess advocate and eventually a priestess of the sacred feminine. Her spiritual quest, shared by her husband of 20 years, includes her love and associations with the Egyptian goddess Isis, leading to her sacred tours and travels, including Egypt and Ireland, where she was ordained, and her continual calling to help midwife the rebirth of the divine feminine in contemporary society. Photographs throughout the book, meditations, prayers, and ordination rituals are included, which give a real insight into the depth of the author's faith and commitment to goddess. Concluding the work, and particularly useful or recommended resources and glossaries of the many multicultural goddesses and the values and principles for spirituality of the sacred feminine. The author makes it clear that her view of goddess consciousness is about the balance of both feminine and masculine principles, an integral point as harmony is always achieved through a balance of opposites. Conclusively, this is a book to inspire and empower anyone who resonates with goddess energy and wants to expand their knowledge. Karen Tate's love and passion for her subject shines through, and I defy anyone to say that she has not achieved her aim to bring the sacred feminine into the mainstream. Personally, I think she has done a grand job. Oh, I'm blushing, I'm blushing, I'm grinning, I have goosebumps. Thank you so much, Sheena. What a nice, nice review. It was really nice to see that uh, on the Internet today. So um, now I will uh, turn my attention to uh, my wonderful guest, uh, Lorelei Black. Uh, let me tell you a little bit more about her, and I encourage you to go into our archives and uh, listen to some of our previous interviews because, you know what, uh, we have had some fun conversations. Lorelai Black is a hedge rider, a cunning woman, and a traveler on the crooked path of the witch. She is also a priestess of love and pleasure, an Ishtar woman, an Aphrodite woman. She is a friend to daemons and a mate to the red god. A bone collector, a temple dancer, Lorelai is the author of 11, 11 books including Temple of Love and the Witch's Key to the Legion, a guide to Solomonic, hope I said that right, sorcery, a co-director and frequent presenter at the Babylon Rising Festival, an OTO initiate, and a proud co-proprietress of Asteria Books and Events. And her website is her name, laureleiblack.com, L-A-U-R-E-L-E-I. B-L-A-C-K dot com. Well, Lorelai, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. Well, you know, we always have such fun, and I'm so glad you agreed to uh, come back on the show. You know, I, I can recall it always felt like, you know, we never finished the conversations. You know, they were so rich, we could have gone on and on, but, you know, alas, we had to uh, call it a night and uh, get you back on another day, and I feel like this is sort of just the continuation of the story. <laughs> 
I agree, absolutely. I've um, I've loved every conversation that we've had, and I feel like I could just talk to you almost every week if you wanted to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I I I am, you know, some people might say, "Gee, Karen, you sure talk a lot about sex on your radio show," and I do. You know, I mean, women have been repressed from their sexuality from like since forever. You know, so yeah, it's always about sex. It's always about politics. It's always about religion. The stuff they tell women. They're supposed to keep their nose out of, you know, and that just makes me want to go there all the more. I am not a conformist, I'm afraid. Um, but, you know, you and I were, were talking on email um, before we booked the show, and I think you said something about you were actually going around the country interviewing contemporary women who considered themselves courtesans. Is, am I remembering uh, properly about that? Um, pretty close. I haven't been going around the country per se. I, I, I wish that, that that my interviews were live and in person. That would be wonderful. But I've been talking with people online that I've known um, that have worked as, as sacred courtesans in one capacity or another and sort of collecting their stories and finding out um, how this work is manifested for them. Uh, so, okay. so, yes, in that sense, I've been talking with people all over the place. <laughs> Well, you know, whether you know whether you're doing it by Skype or telephone or email, it, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be sitting there in front of them, um, you know, to communicate, you know. Um, so, yeah, you've been going around. And, um, and, you know, why don't we, you know, I, I want to try to draw comparisons to what we maybe think happened in those ancient times in Sumeria and Babylon and classical Greece and how maybe it's different today, you know. Um, where do you want to start? You know, what should we know ab- about what we can intuit or, um, you know, actually, I hate the word prove, but have maybe some evidence for, uh, you know, actually went on in ancient times? Well, it's it's difficult. It's a really tricky subject. And I, I know that there are scholars who are much more invested in this material than I am, um, that, that have really done a, a great deal of research and scholarship. But from what I can see, from what I've read, um, there's a lot that we really don't know. Uh, we have the names of certain types or classes of, of priestesses of sex and love, um, uh, names that were words, titles that were almost universally just translated as prostitute. Um, and... Uh, we have some poetry and some temple records and that kind of thing, um, actually very, very anciently going all the way back to Sumeria and Babylon. Um, the N priestess or the N2, you know, she was a high priestess, um, and her role was inherently sexual, but it was also um, it was also very often a role that was given to a royal woman, a princess um, of the royal house, and. So she was uh, tended to act in sort of a uh, the form of a diplomat as well, um, and, and and that of a civic leader performing ceremonies and rites for the entire city. She was also a poet. So our very first uh, known poet, uh, you know, somebody whose writings have exi- have survived into the contemporary world, is a woman by the name of Enhaduena, and she was the high priestess of. Nana, the moon god, uh, and she was uh, there in the city of Ur back in uh, back in the very, very most ancient days. She, this is actually the first writer whose name we know was a, and, was a, a priestess of sexuality. Yes, yes, and I remember talking about her um, 
oh, a long time ago with a woman by the name of Michelle Hart. Uh, she's way back there in the archives. Uh, she's sort of a, a specialist on this first female poet. Um, but we didn't actually get into the sexuality of it. But obviously, I mean, from what you're saying, um, I mean, sexuality in the ancient world didn't come with the stigma that um, it comes with today. In fact, I would... I don't know, sort of speculate that because, um, oh, uh, what's, what's the word? Fertility was so important in ancient times. You know, it wasn't like people could just go to the grocery store and, you know, and, and pick up some ground meat. You know, you had to have fertility of the animals. You know, you, uh, and, and I'm, you know, maybe even infant mortality was high. Um, fertility was a power, you know, was an important thing to be in charge of. So it makes sense to me that, um, you know, maybe women in ancient times, that sexuality, that fertility was uh, almost a coveted, a revered position rather than some sort of negative stigma like we have today. Thank you, Christianity. Uh, exactly. You're absolutely, you're 100% right. Um, the Often the very most powerful goddess in a pantheon back um, in these really early um, eras of civilization was the goddess of love. Um, she was the goddess of, uh, of sexuality and of human fertility, the fertility of the land. She's often associated with the overflowing rivers, uh, with the rains that were necessary to come to bring life to the entire region and without that function um you know even the ancients knew that they would have nothing they would have no life they would be scraping out subsistence um and and probably wouldn't even be doing that so she was seen as a hugely powerful figure and she was um so powerful in fact that in certain time place or in certain time periods in certain places every woman was expected to fulfill the role of the temple prostitute. Um, now, and I say that it's not like that was everywhere. You know, not every ancient woman had to go and sit in the temple and wait to be, to act as a as a courtesan or as a lover. Um, but I know for sure that in um, in Phoenicia and in Canaan that this was a function that that they did during a certain time period um, because it was expected that every woman could act as the goddess to her husband, the god, that every, um, you know, that they were all trained in these ways and that it was just so vital. And, and so um, prostitutes from the temple to the tavern, you know, from the brothel to the back alleys were all considered holy women. Um, there's a story in the Epic of Gilgamesh of Shamhat, uh, who goes out to tame the wild man in Kidu, who's been sent to kill Gilgamesh. Um, but... Uh, she goes out and civilizes him with a week of, of pleasure and love um, and, and, and actually brings him into this civilized world of Ur, into an actually very close friendship with the man he was intended uh, to assassinate um, because sexuality is this sort of civilizing process. Well, and, and you know, Lorelai, there's, so there's so much in this topic beyond just sex. Because when you yeah. think about it, okay, you said it. It's a, I think you, the word you used was the civilizing element of society, or or you alluded to that. You know, think about it. You know, you look at 
places around the world where men and women can't even have normal relationships. Women are hiding themselves in burkas. You know, they don't even grow up in a in a society where, you know, boy little boys and little girls play in the schoolyard together. I mean, total segregation. And and you know, you can't even date a woman before you marry her. And I mean, all of this um you know, this this these Abrahamic sexual taboos that, you know, have just turned uh, human being sexuality on its head. And and then, you know, we wonder why men um, are blowing themselves up, you know, or blowing other right. people up. You know, it. I mean, let's just say it. I mean, it's, it's sexuality tames the savage beast in men. And, you know, maybe it was always supposed to, and and maybe that's supposed to be normal, and maybe if, you know, these Abrahamic religions hadn't come along and made um, the material world uh, not be sacred anymore, wouldn't have put sh- attached shame to sex, the world would probably be a much more peaceful, loving, harmonious place. You know, it, it, at least you know, maybe I'm just have the romantic notions, but I, it, it feels that way to me. You know, it feels that way to me too. And I, I, I often think and step back. You know, am I just having? Um, am I just being very Pollyanna about all of it? Am I very, very naive? And it's possible that I am very, very naive. Um, and 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 that I, I look at the world through these sort of rose-colored glasses. But I really believe that. Um, I believe that the sacred and the sexual were always meant to coexist, um, and we've divorced from from ages, centuries, and millennia past. We've divorced the the sacred from the sexuality. Um, we've reserved it uh, through the influence of these Abrahamic faiths. We've reserved that sacredness in sexuality only for the marriage bed. Um, but it was never it was never that way before, um, or at least it was rarely that way before. Uh, it was, I believe, that sex and sexuality um, are a way to connect very deeply with yourself um, at a very, um, at a level that's almost indescribable. You learn things about yourself uh, through the exploration and expression of your sexual being. But you also are able to connect with a partner, and I think that that's really obvious in a lot of ways, that we're able to connect with each other um, uh, you know, you can get into the metaphysics of chakras lining up and energy fields merging and all this kind of stuff, and I think that that's actually really very true. But we also are able to connect with the divine um, through sexuality um, in a way that is almost, I, I think people recognize it, but they're afraid of it, I think because it's such a big thing. Um, you know, there are references in, in, in pop culture to somebody having this wonderful orgasmic experience and, and feeling like they saw the face of God. Um, and I'm not making light of that. I think that it's absolutely true that that is mm-hmm. a way for us to connect to the universe, to, to all that is holy and divine in that one instant. You know, so these three levels. Right, right. Yeah, and that beautifully said, you know, and, and when you, and, and, and so there, so, you know, other elements of this are as, as the sacredness gets taken out of the sexuality, then we end up with rape. We end up with pornography, you know. Um, and I don't know, we probably, I don't know, maybe we would have had that anyway, but it just feels like that in so many places around the world, um, people are not having 
sex the way it was intended, you know. I mean, so many religions, it's it's just for procreation and don't you dare enjoy it, kind of a thing, <laughs> right. you know. And, and and I mean, and it's and it's it's just uh, it's such a shame uh, when you when you think about it, and and also think about this too. It almost makes me think, you know, could the power of women's sexuality been part of the reason that men wanted to demonize it and also take away women's power. Because let's face it, you know, anybody who's had a lover, you know how after you have good sex, you know, he's just sort of sated. You know, I mean, he will do anything for you almost, you know. I mean, he loves you so much, you know, he, he, you know, he will eat out of your hand. And it's kind of like that, you know, if, if your agenda is to, I don't know, have power and control, um, then you don't want somebody else. You, you know, you don't want the female gender maybe having that kind of, having that kind of power. I, I don't know. Does that make any sense? It does. Um, it, it does make sense to me. I'm not sure that those, I mean, obviously I think it would be erroneous to say that, that just one thing sort of contributes to um, to the demonizing of, of women's sexuality or of sexuality in general. But I know that if you look at, um, I, I've done a lot of work recently in um, in researching and sort of communicating with some of the spirits of the Goetia, of the legion um, that's attributed to to Solomon, to King Solomon, um, and is often referred to as Solomonic magic. Um, and one of the chief spirits uh, in that in that corpus is um, one called uh, Astaroth. Well, if you look at Astaroth, if you look at anything about Astaroth, it, she's very obviously the goddess Asherah. Um, she's very obviously Asherah, Astarte, Inanna, Ishtar. She's the goddess of love. Um, but she's said to be... Um, by the writings themselves, by these uh, uh, probably medieval writings about um, about these spirits, she said to be the most dangerous and don't, you know, she will she will um, uh, poison you with fumes of her breath and um, and mislead you and misguide you. Um, and, and a lot that's uh, that's in there about um, just sort of sexually luring a person away, a, a male magician or a, a magician away from, from the truth in order, to, um, in order to get you to do her will. And certainly that's, that, that accusation has been leveled at women for, for a very long time. It's part of mm-hmm. the witch hysteria of times past. You know, uh, a woman with a deep connection to her sexuality is frankly kind of a fearsome thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, an amazing and powerful thing, but but one that uh, that it's easy for men and even other women to fear. Um, right, right. Somebody that's it, that in touch with themselves and and the goddess. You know, it's true. Potent. And 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 you know, and I mean, and if somebody were to do that for you know dishonest means, you know, I can see where that sort of manipulation would not be a good thing. You know, don't get me wrong. Right. But by the same token, you know, I can I can. I can see where it's almost as if men would be afraid of the power women had over them because of their sexuality. I mean, just as plain yeah. as as plain as that, you know. Uh, right. And at the same time, wanting it and needing them, you know, um, it, it it must have made men feel powerless and and vulnerable potentially, you know. Uh, and, yes, and maybe, absolutely. And maybe some of that is at the heart of 
you know, you know, why demonize women? Why demonize the goddess? Why demonize sexuality? You know, because being vulnerable like that was just too scary a thing, um, you know, to have in the hands of, of somebody else. But, okay, so, all right, so you talk a little bit about the, um, you know, these, these women in um, Sumeria and Babylonia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so were, was it different when you go to classical Greece? It does become a little different, actually, when you go to class. By the time you're in classical Greece, um, you know, they view Aphrodite very much during that time period as an Eastern goddess. She's not entirely an Eastern goddess. She has roots there in, in Proto-Indo-European religion, in, in Minoan and Mycenaean religion. But um, especially where the sexuality was concerned, that was considered an Eastern practice. Um, there were temples of Aphrodite that housed... Um, large uh, uh, cloisters or brothels, for lack of a better term, of, of women who served in this capacity. Uh, but they were not nearly as common. Uh, they didn't, those didn't exist everywhere. There was one in Corinth, for certain. There was one um, in Cyprus. Um, there was one, actually, in uh, Sicily on Mount Eryx. Um, but that had begun as a Phoenician temple of Astarte. Um, and so you see this sort of thread of the, the eastern goddess, the golden goddess of love, um, with her golden imagery. Um, and um, while it served an important function in ancient Greece or in classical Greece, it was also viewed with a little bit of disdain. Um, there was a lot that was done, I think we've spoken about this before, of um, Homer really discrediting, I think, um, uh, some of the great goddesses, you know, really sort of putting Athena into what he saw as her place and Aphrodite as being put in her place where she was demoted from the daughter of, of the great sky god, the great Titan um, and the sea to being uh, the daughter of Zeus and told, you know, during an episode of the Trojan War, you know, go home, take a bath, make yourself pretty, feel better. You're not supposed to be involved in these things. This doesn't <laughs> like concern Like he's patting you. her on the head. <laughs> I know, oh, very much. Uh, whereas really, you know, the goddess of love has always also been a goddess of war. Uh, the, the battlefield was certainly her landscape, um, every bit as much as the boudoir was. So um, I think there's definitely a demotion in both the function of the goddess of love and in her priestesses by the time we get to the classical world. Although the terminology that's used for them, hierodule, is still... Uh, Still references the sacred, hiero meaning sacred or holy, and dule meaning uh, servant. So um, the, the temple prostitutes were still seen as sacred vessels. They were still seen as sacred, sacred functionaries within the temple. And, and, and so what, what do we know for absolute sure? I mean, do we have any sort of detail other than what we can glean from trans, you know, the linguistics of their title? Um, we have a little bit more than that. There are, um, you know, records of uh, of taxes and this kind of thing, you know, um, just sort of civic records um, recounting the number of uh, the number and type of, of courtesans um, because they certainly had more than just the sacred courtesans. But um, to that end, all, all prostitutes were considered under the protection and patronage of the goddess of love, um, even the, the very most common sort of street streetwalker, uh, her name or her title was Porne, um, which is actually where we get our term pornography from, this um, 
this very sort of blatant um, uh, unshielded or un uh, I'm coming up with a bad word for it, but you know, a person that wasn't necessarily walking with the mantle of of sacred service uh, was still seen as a stand-in for the goddess, which is actually what the word prostitute means. It comes from the Latin that means to stand in. So hmm. she was a she was very much um, the goddess's representative in that moment. Um, wow! Talk about heaven to. I mean, we always talk about heaven to um, rehabilitate the word, you know, words like feminist, like right. priestess. Well, to, I, I had no idea uh, prostitute meant to stand in. Talk about a word that needs rehabilitation. It, it really does. And it's one of the reasons why I use the word so openly most of the time, because it, it really gets, uh, there's such a negative and distasteful connotation for the word. Right. So all right, so so there were different levels of of courtesan or prostitute. Um, do you know we we know sometimes in the pagan world in different places, you know some some places women were still chattel, other places you know women had their own assets and could divorce their husbands. I mean, where did they? Do we know? You know where they fit into the scheme of things? I mean, were they? Um, you know, I, I guess well, were they independent women? You know, were they respected, or or, or no? Uh, do we know any of that? You know, we we know a little bit. Some it, it depends largely on time and place. You know, it's it's really difficult to talk about the entire um, span of Mediterranean worship. You know, and paint it with one sort of brushstroke. Um, so it really sort of depends on on the time and place, and it also depends on the type of prostitute. Um, some were, you know, independent contractors, for lack of a better word. Some were associated with the temple. Uh, some were considered uh, temple slaves. You know, they were actually owned by the temple. Um, others uh, were very actually well-respected women. There were um, the hetere in ancient Greece were uh, very often um, uh, very well provided for women. They were educated. They were allowed to come to the symposium, uh, to the symposia with men and discuss politics and uh, religion, art, science, all of these things. They were expected to be able to have that sort of intercourse <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and they actually, I mean, if, for my money, I would have rather been a hetary than, than an honored wife in a home because I would have been, you know, shut away in the women's quarters and not allowed to be around other people with intelligent conversation. Well, so, you know, it reminds me of the movie that you can probably rent or uh, stream on Netflix or something. I think it was Dangerous Beauty. Um, yes. Took place, I think it was in Italy, wasn't it? Um, around yes, it uh, was. Venice. Yes. Which is, and, of course, and, named for the goddess of love. Venice yes, is named yes. for Venus. Oh, and, yep. You know, I didn't even think about that till you just said it. Um, but yeah, uh, listeners, definitely go rent this movie. It's just like Lorelai saying, you know, this woman was a sacred courtesan, and you see, you know, she leads a, leads a much better life than the wives who are all dressed in black with their sour faces. <laughs> right, absolutely. She was free to have joy and pleasure in her life, and she was free to manage her own money. Um, to, to manage her own land and property. She was allowed to have those things. Um, but even then, um, you know, you asked if they were respected and, and, and that sort of thing. And very often, um, well, they, 
sometimes had a, a rather privileged place within the society. They were also often usually still seen as very fringe people. Um, and either because of their holiness and they were sort of cloistered or because, you know, as a woman they couldn't really be around other women very easily. They could be around other courtesans but not around um, sort of well-respected and proper girls and women. Um, right. So they didn't have those sorts of relationships, and they were they were definitely seen as um, you know. In our last conversation, a lot about the the liminal aspects, these sort of between places aspects of of Aphrodite, and and this is one of those places where that really happened, where um, you know most men would have engaged with a courtesan at some point, uh, but she was something different. She was something other than um, yeah. She was really the sort of between the worlds, wasn't she? You know. Uh, yeah, didn't didn't, didn't really was. fit didn't really fit anywhere you know sometimes I feel right. like we're like that you know we don't really fit in mainstream society you know we're we're sort of you know I, I call us the cognitive minority you know but um, you know anyway right. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I, I digress well, and that's, so <laughs> well no it's actually a very powerful that's always been a very powerful role you know to be able to be the dissenter to be able to um, you know, to speak what sometimes sounds like madness um, to the rest of the world, but poets, um, prostitutes, <laughs> they're always sort of fringe people, but they're right. very important to society. Do and do any um, any of their names uh, come come you know down to us? Um, do you know any any of them famous enough that we know their name? They do, in fact, and um, oh, I've just had one escape. Praxiteles. Um, uh, shoot, I'm not remembering if that's the, the courtesan's name or the sculptor's name, but um, there are a couple of very famous sculptures of the goddess Aphrodite um, in which uh, a particular courtesan, a very, very well-known um, and, and much-loved courtesan, had served as a model for, uh, for this famous sculptor. And... Um, it said, the legend is, that when Aphrodite saw the sculpture, he said, she said, how did he see me naked? When did he see me nude? <laughs> because she was, yeah. <laughs> Well, and that's a woman, you know, like they always say in beauty pageants, if there was one person you could have dinner with, who would it be? Now, that's a woman I'd like to talk to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to hear what life was like. So, all right. So, um, you know, we we we're chatting away here, and and uh, I want to make sure we get to the modern day uh, sacred courtesans. There's something uh, you call a. Am I pronouncing it right? Kadishti movement. Kadishti. Yes. Kadishti. Okay. So, <laughs> yes, so what Kiddishti. is that? Tell tell us more. Okay. So, uh, Kadishti comes from a. I believe it's a Canaanite word um, that means holy one. Uh, Kadishtu was a holy one. Um, and what it seems to happen in uh, contemporarily is that the word Kadishti has been used as sort of one of the more unifying terms for the people who are currently practicing uh, more Western forms of sacred sexuality. So, you know, Western meaning not Eastern, not Tantra or Neo-Tantra, um, but sort of everything else that's, um, that's considered sacred sexuality. Some of those folks draw on Middle Eastern roots, but not all, probably not even most, um, but a fair few do. Um, and uh, we're sort of, I, I identify as a Kiddush too, um, uh, even though, you know, my, 
my spiritual background isn't really Middle Eastern. It's just, again, it's the most convenient term that's being used uh, right now. Um, I was very fortunate about in about 2005 to come across the Kadishnu movement. Um, Charles Arnold at the time had uh, the New Temple of Astarte um, and Michael Manor, uh, who's in Cincinnati, which is pretty close to me, um, has his Temple of Venus Aracena, and he put on uh, a couple of what he called Kadishti Fests um, as uh, retreats. Um, I was able to meet. It, there's actually quite a, a lot of Kadishti activity here in the Midwest, which seems baffling to me in some ways. And but yet, it's in the Midwest, um, you mean? But it's in the Midwest, yeah, because it's so conservative here. But but yet there seem to be, you know, sacred prostitutes abounding in Cincinnati, um, Columbus, Ohio. We've got Dan and John Williams. Um, who have a couple of books out, and they run a group called The Path of the Kadishtu and uh, the Erotic Awakenings podcast. Um, there's a couple up in uh, Chicago, David Namandatori. They run Terra Incognita, which is a Kadishti temple. Um, so we've just got a lot of, a lot of, for some reason, this tri-state area of Indiana, Ohio, and Illinois seems to be kind of a, a hot bed, a hot pardon the pun, <laughs> <laughs> of sacred sexuality. So, Lorelai, can you draw a distinction between, oh, this is going to be hard to say, but I don't know any other way to say it, somebody who is really doing this because they believe it is sacred sexuality and someone who is, I don't know, just some seedy sex worker who, um, I don't know, I hate to even say this, but you know what I'm saying, you know, the kind that, that, that right. you know, a, a, a drug, you know, a, a sort of a drug addict, you know, w- walk in the streets kind of a thing. I mean, is, is there a distinction? I uh, yes and no. There is not a distinction in the sense that um, that all prostitutes, anciently, no matter how disenfranchised they were, no matter how down on their luck or desperate they were, still would have been under the protection and patronage of the goddess of love. The difference is that those women knew that they were, Um, whereas contemporarily, because, as I said before, the sex and the sacred have been so divorced from each other, I think that, that, that women and men now who find themselves working in the realm of, of sex work, you know, as call girls, strippers, cam girls, phone sex operators, you know, all of these things, they, uh, it's very rare actually to find any who approach it with, um, with an eye towards spirituality, um, or a cognizance that, that this is, that this is and has been honored work in the past. Um, so, you know, and really in sort of a, a very grotesque way, I've known of, um, I, I've seen online actually several, uh, several women or, or even temples who um, sort of appropriate the term in order as a marketing trick, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Which is disappointing, I think. But, uh, but at the same time, I feel that goddesses like Aphrodite and Inanna and Ishtar, uh, Pamagira, Freya, you know, these goddesses still would um, give their patronage and their protection to, to all men and women who are, um, who are standing in for them. I, I just right. wish that more of them understood that they were standing in. I think that um, the, the discussions would be safer and saner vocations if the spiritual were honored. You know, if we saw them as services offered by sacred servants, you know, and not as shameful acts by desperate and broken people. 
Right, right. That's a perfect way to describe it. And and you know, I you made me think of a movie I saw and for the life of me I can't remember the names of the people who was in it, but this one this wonderful woman was a sex uh surrogate. She would and she was trying to, you know, this man who was a paraplegic or something who had never had mm-hmm. sex in his entire life. You know, she worked with him and worked with him and worked with him so that he could have some sense of a sex life and, you know, and have some pleasure in his life before he died. And, you know, I'm thinking that's all part of it, too. Yes, absolutely. Um, In fact, that's uh, not uncommon among the work that I know that my peers have done. Um, There's a lot of um, sort of healing... uh, Healing the wounded, the wounded body, the wounded, the wounded psyche. Um, there's a lot of damage that we've inflicted upon each other within our culture, where sex um, and sexuality are concerned. Uh, and I, I feel like the the, the prostitute, the kadishu, has the opportunity to really um, to help mend some of those tears, to heal some of those wounds, um, in a way that's uh, beneficial for both the client and the courtesan. So um, now these modern these modern people uh, who do see this as as sacred and you know aren't just you know pretending that you know there's a sacred aspect right. to it. Um, how, what what should we know about them? You know, what are they doing? Um, are they managing to? I, I mean, do they have to sort of skirt the law because of? you know, prostitution, I mean, how do they manage all of that? I mean, what what is it did you find in general? Well, I found that there are more um, expressions of this work than than you could even imagine, really. And there are a lot, there are a lot of women and men who are engaged very directly with people and are engaging in, uh, you know, intercourse, you know, going all the way to intercourse. Um, but that's probably not even the most common thing that's happening. Um, very often the work involves um, sort of being in a person's presence, being with them, talking through things with them, um, um, a- acting almost as a counselor in a lot of ways um, and as a companion. There is, for the women and men that are engaging in a very direct, um, you know, uh, exchange of of uh, of money or goods for uh, sexual contact in this sacred setting, there is a lot of skirting the law. Um, there's a, kind of a constant fear that 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 they're going to be, you know, picked up as a, you know, as a prostitute. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And um, but there are a lot that actually um, just don't that sort of set their limits and don't go beyond. Uh, a, a point that would be considered illegal. Um, I've laughed for several years. I, uh, you mentioned um, in my introduction the my role within Babylon Rising Festival, um, and I'm actually there uh, organizing the Scarlet Track, which is a sex, magic, and sacred sexuality line of workshops and rituals that happens through the event. Um, and I've <laughs> I've laughed often with people that my role has gone from sort of sacred prostitute to sacred organizer um i (laughs) i i act a lot more in a facilitating and organizational capacity so maybe sacred madam i'm not really sure Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but you know education and training are a lot of the things that that people are doing now too helping um helping uh 
seekers or uh, spiritual explorers to connect with their own partners um, in ways that uh, that they found difficult or troublesome in the past. Um, I wonder. So, uh, well, are, are there any if, if people were interested? You know, are there any blogs out there? You know, sort of like well, you know, kind of the life of a contemporary sacred courtesan. You know, there. Um, there's one, I think it's not being used a lot right now, but it's called the Kadishtu Experience. Um, and it's, I believe it's on Blogspot. So I, if you were to do a search for the Kadishtu Experience, um, that one shares a lot of stories from, from different groups. There's the Kadishtu.org. Well, actually, I'm sorry, jumping all over the place. So all this thing, right? Um, Mike Manor, who I mentioned before, runs a Yahoo group called... Uh, just Kadishtu, Q-A-D-I-S-H-T-U, um, and you can find that through Yahoo Groups. Um, and it's not so much a, a blog or a look at those things, but but people share their experiences and questions are are welcome to be asked. Um, uh, Dan and Don Williams have a podcast called uh, Erotic Awakenings that explores um, the Kadishtu experience, but also uh, a, a lot of other sort of sacred sexual topics, including the use of BDSM, uh, polyamory, uh, and all of these kinds of things. Um, but honestly, that's one of the biggest sort of complaints that happens in this uh, in the world of the Kadishtu is that there are not as many resources available right now as there probably need to be for somebody who's exploring the path. Yeah, and I can it's, imagine it's difficult, it's difficult because you know it would have to probably be anonymous and. Um, you know, how do you, I don't know, you know, it would be hard to trust, you know, who you're talking to. And, uh, I mean, there's so much to overcome because of the, uh, you know, the negative connotations attached, you know. You you wouldn't know if you were talking to somebody who were just a cover for a prostitution ring versus somebody who's really serious about this being sacred and in service to Aphrodite. Right, exactly. It is difficult to know. Um, I think um, there are some that some teachers, some mentors, or some sort of practitioners that have made themselves more visible, um, and very often then are not engaging in things that would be deemed illegal. They're sort of um, in a counseling or training uh, capacity. Um, but it is difficult to actually get uh, hands-on training, as it were. You know, to find mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. somebody who can. If you're feeling drawn to this path, it's difficult to find somebody who can guide you through and act as a mentor to you. Um, there's also questions of, uh, you know, really what that other person's intentions are. Um, right. And just finding a, a teacher-student fit that works for you. I mean, even within uh, larger sections of goddess spirituality or paganism in general, sometimes it's difficult. You know, you know what you want to study, but the person that's offering it near you may not be a person you particularly want to study with. Exactly. So, um, so well, well, well Lorelai, um, uh, Jenna isn't on the switchboard yet, uh, but she could pop up any second here. Um, uh, of all of the books you've written, uh, do any of them cover um, uh, sacred sexuality, uh, sex magic, uh, anything like that? If, if someone were interested in, you know, learning more about this, um, it, it, you know, it, it, any of your titles that you would recommend, perhaps? Um, the one that I've written so far that I would recommend is Aphrodite's Priestess. Um, 
it was the first book that I wrote. Um, but it doesn't go into the depth that I would like, and I'm actually working on one right now. <laughs> so I, okay. have, I, I have a book that should be forthcoming probably within the next year or so um, uh, that will likely be called High Road Dulé. Okay. Um, uh, and then another term for the sacred courtesan. So, so we have uh, Hiradule, we got Kadishtu, we got um, a courtesan. Um, were there yes, any from other the, uh, from the Latin? There's Meritrix, uh, uh, other Canaanite or um, uh, Sumerian terms include Harim uh, two or N two, the N two on priestess. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Patera so, is not inappropriate. Um, so for someone who, um, you know, like you were saying, you know, see the face of God, um, you know, if, if someone is, is interested in, you know, trying to either with their, with their partner or, with the, or, or I don't know, is it possible with yourself to oh, yeah. actually have this kind of ecstatic experience? And um, where can somebody read about how they would maybe achieve it, you know, work themselves up to it. You know, one of the places that I would start would be Margot Anand's books. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Uh, her last no. name is called A-N- A-N-A-N-D, and she wrote, um, uh, oh, no, the titles are going to fly out of my mind, um, The Magic of Sexual Ecstasy and the Art of Sexual Ecstasy. Uh, and both of those books are a really excellent place to start. They they do come from sort of a more neo-tantric perspective and not so much the, the Western sacred sexuality, but really they're a, a very effective place to start when you're talking about um, sort of achieving these ends either with yourself or uh, with a partner. Okay. Um, well, Lorelai, uh, Jenna is on the switchboard now, and uh, so timing was perfect here. Uh, as always, I had a wonderful conversation with you, and um, I look forward to uh, actually finding the time to read some of your books. I find this uh, really fascinating. Um, I, I mean, what uh, women and priestesses uh, did in ancient times is definitely a, uh, a pet subject of mine. So, uh, and, and I always love to see how women are taking what we can glean from ancient times and reconstructing it, you know, to make it relevant uh, today, you know, so that, um, you know, we kind of have that red cord that connects us, you know, yes. from the past, you know, to the present as much as, as, much as we possibly can, you know. Um, so, Absolutely. listeners, uh, we uh, have been chatting with Lorelai Black, and her website uh, is her name, L-A-U-R-E-L-E-I, black.com. So, Lorelai, as we close, any, anything, any closing statement or comment you'd like to make? Um, I think nothing in particular, just that I hope that, uh, that this opens up a world of exploration for some people. It's uh, been a very rich experience for me and a very eye-opening one. So I hope that others are able to find that as well. Okay. And uh, Babylon Rising Festival or uh, Asteria Books and Events, um, uh, how, is, that some, is Babylon Rising something that happens every year? or? It does. It happens every June um, in uh, southern Indiana. Um, and people can find that by going to babylonrising.org, B-A-B-A-L-O-N, rising.org. And then Asteria Books um, is A-S-T-E-R-I-A, books.com, and that's my publishing house. Um, 
and we're always looking for good titles regarding uh, regarding spirituality, magic, sacred sexuality, um, and we're going to have some more forthcoming soon. So I do hope people will check them out. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much, and uh, let's keep in touch. And, um, you know, when you have something else you'd like to chat about or that other book you just mentioned, when that's actually out, um, you know, pop me an email and we'll have you back again. Absolutely. I would love to do that. Thank you so much for having me on the show tonight, Karen. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for uh, all the work you're doing in the world. Well, thank you. Okay. Good night. Good night. Okay, so we uh, are crossing the threshold uh, into the second half of the show. And in just a few moments, uh, I will be getting to our uh, second guest, uh, Jenna, with uh, the Avalon and uh, the uh, Avalonia and the Sisterhood of Avalon. I think that's going to be really interesting. Uh, But first, Got to pay for the show, so here goes a word from Joe Carson in Dancing with Gaia. The psychic state is the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet. It's called the chthonic mind, the mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and divine were all connected, they were together, that there wasn't a separation. That's what we are trying to return to is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. That's the sacred. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. Well, that was Serena Roney Dougal, Ph.D., speaking in Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. Dancing with Gaia explores the connection between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddess as Gaia. It features 15 visionaries like Serena Roney Dougal, who gives us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. The DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book, and the cost is only $20. I think it's probably a must-have for your home library, or it would make a great gift. Uh, You can get your own copy at DancingWithGaia.com. And uh, speaking of um, things that would make great gifts, (laughs) a shameless plug here, Um, I just got uh, a great review for my new book out, a Goddess Calling, and um, uh, I, I hope you don't mind uh, that I'm going to share it with you. Uh, I don't often do this, but uh, I was happy with this review, and it's going to be um, uh, out there uh, in, in some magazines in the U.K., Uh, Anyway, uh, this comes from Wendy Stokes, and she said, uh, Goddess Calling by Reverend Dr. Karen Tate has been glowingly reviewed and praised by Jean Houston, Barbara Walker, Susanna Budapest, and many other greats of the women's spirituality movement of our time. I opened it with considerable excitement to drink in its beauty and riches and enjoy its poetry, delight, and magic. The author provides here a useful manual to explore the many aspects of the sacred feminine and to access inspiration, encouragement, and 
empowerment, not just on a personal level, but also to create a wisdom circle, a community in which rituals can be held to further explore this dynamic and transformational spiritual path, especially for women. It is not realistically possible to exclude spirituality from politics because politics is the way in which we are governed and also conditioned. Under patriarchy, women have been in subservient roles to men. Men have acted as intermediary between themselves and a male authoritarian godhead who applauds hierarchy and oppression. Under patriarchy, there is no suitable role model for spiritual leadership by women. Yes, theology, with an, with an E, not theology, Karen Tate, an ordained minister, tells us about the goddess as deity archetype and ideal through the devotion of the divine feminine. We can reshape our personal and societal values and culture. She explains how we can create our own services and rituals to honor the goddesses of seasons or specific goddesses for particular purpose, such as fighting injustices that are inflicted on our sisters around the world. These can be simple acts of devotion with lighting candles and reciting uh, Prayers, um, oh wait, I'm sorry, uh, reciting opening prayers, then providing readings, affirmations, meditations, chants, storytelling, and the sharing of experiences. Beautiful prayers are provided with meditations and other useful material to support the work of the group. Uh, Reverend Tate guides us in the conservation of our unique planet's precious resources, a political stance which is at the heart of goddess and earth-based spirituality. Whether you are called to teach, write, campaign, heal, inform, and raise awareness or give of your time, skill, or monetary capacities, the path of the goddess is one of the most important and enjoyable a woman uh, a woman can take. This book will help awaken you to the goddess by creating a group for ceremonies and meetings to honor the goddess in her many forms. Heed the calling, trust the journey, make a difference. So thank you, Wendy Stokes, uh, for publishing that over in the UK. Uh, I really appreciate it. So, um, and I want to thank uh, my next guest for her patience. Uh, we are going to be talking to Jenny uh, Tellend- uh, Jenna Tellendrew in just a moment here. Uh, let me unmute her. Hi, Jenna. How are you doing? Jenna? I am well. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Um, Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, I want to just uh, read your bio uh, for my listeners so they know a little bit more about you. I I briefly uh, told them about you in the opening, but uh, I didn't get to all the good stuff. So uh, let me uh, sing your praises uh, a little bit here. Um, So, my listeners, uh, Jenna, uh, she says she has her undergraduate uh, degree in archaeology, uh, and uh, she's completing her master's degree in Celtic studies through the University of Wales, uh, Trinity St. David. Her first book, Avalon Within, was published by Llewellyn in uh, 2010. She's had numerous uh, articles published in pagan magazines like Pangaea, Sage Woman, Witches and Pagan, Circle Magazine, The Beltane Papers. Uh, she's had essays in several Llewellyn annuals, uh, short story, and 
the Scribbing Ibis, an anthology of pagan fiction in honor of Toth. And she's working on several other book projects. And uh, she'll be having an oracle deck and book published by Schiffer Publishing next year. That's exciting. That's hard to do. Uh, she's originally from Brooklyn. She lives in Ithaca, New York with her uh, two children and two cats and uh, her many, many books. Her life sounds so much like mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, um, she believes she has been blessed to walk uh, a goddess path for three decades, and she's the founder and Morgan of the Sisterhood of Avalon and serves as academic dean of the Avalonian Theological Seminary. She's the author of Avalon Within, as we mentioned before, A Sacred Journey of Mystery and Inner Wisdom, uh, creator of uh, a unique Avalonian posture system demonstrated on an instructional DVD called Trancing the Inner Landscape, Avalonian Landscape Postures. And she's also produced uh, a spoken word album of guided meditations entitled Journeys to Avalon, uh, Imrama to the Holy Isle. Uh, she does uh, Avalonian intensives and workshops across the country, facilitates pilgrimages to sacred sites, in the British Isles and uh, Ireland, you know, we have an awful lot in common. <laughs> uh, so, Jenna, um, <laughs> yes, yes, uh, so much, uh, from, <laughs> from the two cats to the sacred trips to the books, 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 and all the stuff you're doing. God, it feels like you're, um, you're I, I'm seeing you and your reflection, or you're reflecting back at me. <laughs> um, well, it's such a privilege I, to be here, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. I can't tell well, you, um, you know, I, I'm so that. glad you're, you're with us because I had not yet uh, heard about the incredible work you're doing, um, and I, I, I was just intrigued. You know, I want to know more about um, the Avalonian tradition and the sisterhood of, of Avalon. Um, tell me more about it and um, how long it's been around and, and what you're doing. Um, you know, just sort of, you know, start to fill us in. Well, the Sisterhood of Avalon was founded in 1995, so we're coming up on a big uh, big anniversary next year, so we're really excited about that. Um, we have a lot of different uh, projects, a lot of different aims in the world, but primarily we see ourselves as an educational space and also a supportive space for women to connect with goddess and to enter into their sovereignty. Sovereignty is such a huge part of the Avalonian tradition. It's it's the female side of the grail quest. And so that's really the, um, the uh, defining um, center of our work. Is, um, sort of a, you mean sort of like a heroine's journey instead of the hero's journey? Very similar, yes. I mean, the grail quest is such a um, definitive archetype for uh, Celtic or Syrian legends. I mean, the Arthurian legends are based on the old Celtic tale, seeking cauldrons of transformation and um, it was always women who were the keepers of the growl keepers of the cauldron and so we see that path for the male is to seek out the balance by connecting with the divine feminine and for the female it is acknowledging our connection our being centered in the divine feminine and that's uh, something I think um, kind of defines in a lot of ways women's spiritual paths connecting with source connecting with center so um this then, you know, Avalon and the Avalonian tradition, it's prime. It, it's only for women then. It's not for both genders. That is correct. That is correct. Okay. Yes, it's a women's only organization. 
Now, this being um, Celtic in nature, uh, I mean, is this something that's in the United States and also over in Europe? I mean, is it, you know, uh, or, or is, it, is it based here in the United States where you are? We have an international membership. Uh, the, per, the majority of our members are from North America. We um, both uh, the United States and Canada, but we do have uh, European sisters. We have sisters in um, Australia and New Zealand uh, and other places in Europe, in um, France, Italy, Germany, Austria, uh, Gibraltar. I mean, we're pretty much everywhere. Uh, we, there, are, there are several different layers of um, participation. We have an online community. And then we also have local hearth groups where women gather in person to uh, connect, to celebrate, to be in supportive space, um, and to do the work of the tradition. So we have um, many different options. And then we have our Avalonian Theological Seminary, which is a teaching venue, where we, um, which was founded in 1999. So it's been a, a really core part of our vision, um, preparing women to serve in their community as clergy, and um, so that's another layer of teaching that we do. In and I would our, imagine those women are probably legally ordained ministers as uh, other priestesses of goddess spirituality are around the country and, uh, and, and across the pond are as well. That is correct. And we make a little bit of a distinction in our tradition. Uh, we believe that all women, when they feel that they are in a place of sovereignty and connection with goddess, have the right to call themselves priestess. We do not create mm-hmm. priestesses. We do not ordain priestesses. We ordain clergy. So it's kind of a two, it's a, we make a little bit of a difference because we don't want to be in a position of decreeing who is or is not priestess. Right, right. That can that can get uh, uh, kind of <laughs> sticky. <laughs> yes, um, agreed. Um, And so (laughs) it seems like this is sort of a reflection of maybe some of the enclaves that existed uh, in the past, maybe in the Celtic world, correct? That that is correct. Um, We we have seen both in legend, in lore, and in um, the historical records from classical um, writers that the Celts have had enclaves of women, uh, typically on islands, sometimes in uh, sacred groves or deep in forests, where women would gather in groups of nine, sometimes 18. Uh, they would maintain a temple, and it was women's only space. Men were not permitted. And um, these enclaves of women coexisted with uh, the Druids, which were both male and female. So it seems as if they had a different, perhaps parallel, function in Celtic culture, but they existed separately. Our interest is saying, what one, were they doing? Why was there this additional level of clerical service, as it were? Um, And two, what does that teach women of today about their lives and their personal process? If we look at it from a historical perspective, from a legendary perspective, and from a symbolic metaphorical perspective, and it is that metaphor that I think has the most relevance to um, women's past today. So Jenna, what what do you pull from? I mean, what what is the you know what resources do you have that sort of help you know what these women back then were doing, so that you can try to you know recreate this or reconstruct it and make it relevant for women today? 
Well, as I said, there is um, the, the Roman historian Strabo spoke of an island of women uh, off the coast of Brittany, off the coast of France. And there were nine women who lived there, and they were uh, described as being shapeshifters, as healers, as augurs, as uh, weather workers. And um, they, were, they were sought out by people on the mainland, and no man was ever allowed there. They would come to the mainland, they would have their, quote, husbands, and then they would return. So they lived separately. We see in Ireland the um, Kildara, where uh, the, uh, the priestesses of Bridget and, lady, and later the, the nuns of uh, St. Bridget lived separately from the men. There was a hedge that marked the sacred space. Again, she's associated with healing. She's associating with, associated with creativity, with childbirth. In Britain itself, we have Innes Avalon, the island of apples. Again, are, uh, connected. We, we, it's transmitted primarily through Arthurian myth, but some other Welsh myths also talk about the cauldron of transformation that was um, warmed by the breath of nine maidens. There were, again, the Corrigan in, in Brittany, um, these, uh, these shape-shifting, healing um, uh, oracle women who would perform um, initiatory rites deep in the forest. Uh, so there's this uh, ongoing uh, in, in Irish um, Imrama tales, which are wonder journeys, these journeys over water. There was an island of women and an island of apples, and that's the etymology of Avalon. It's the island of apples, the island of wisdom. And I think it's um, telling that the island of wisdom is the women's space, a, holding a particular type of wisdom. And so right, we tie right. into that today is as a place where we seek women's wisdom. Well, and you know, it, you're making me think about a beloved book, uh, *Mists of Avalon*. Um, yeah. I remember reading that early on, and uh, that, along with Merlin Stone and Rhianne Eisler, you know, that piece of fiction, you know, really sort of, I, I think, um, helped you know, give a sense of uh, what it might have been like back then. Um, or, or, or are you familiar with the book, or, or are there other uh, pieces of uh, fiction out there that uh, maybe you can point to as well that, you know, listeners might enjoy? Well, yes, the Miss of Avalon is iconic. I think it's brought so many women and men into goddess spirituality. It's just, uh, you know, whether it's Avalonian or just an, an acknowledgement that there is a goddess and that principle is, is available. So it, it is brilliant. And, um, and the similarity, you know, our tradition is not based on the Mists of Avalon, but it's, uh, it has similarities in that we're drawing from the same source materials. So, um, so yes, you know, the, 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 the key thing about Avalon that we know of from the legends and the lore is that it produced everything it needed in and of itself. And so we take that as a metaphor for, um, one, creating women's community that fulfills and meets its own needs, and then looking within ourselves into finding a place if Avalon is the center of the soul of, of a woman that fulfills its own needs, what wisdom can we gain from that? So we look at mm -hmm. it from that metaphorical place, and uh, this island of healing, of transformation, of growth, is, uh, is you know, what guides us in our work. Um, as far as other, as other books, of course, um, you know, Mary Summer Bradley was brilliant in her ability to, um, to take um, myths and turn them on, on their side, like her Firebrand book. I also really enjoyed um, Elizabeth Cunningham's series about um, the red-robed priestess, the Celtic Maeve. She has a whole series about Mary Magdalene uh, with an origin 
in one of these islands of women. And uh, hmm. there are at least four books now. So I, I could, um, I can't uh, recommend them uh, any higher. They're, they're what was, tell me her name again. I, I, I didn't have a pencil. Eliz- Elizabeth Cunningham. Okay. And uh, her okay. books are about uh, a uh, Mary, they're Magdalene-based, Mary Magdalene-based books. But Mary Magdalene is, again, a, um, a woman who was raised on uh, an island of holy women in the Celtic traditions. And so it kind of adds that to the, uh, to the, to the Christ narrative right, in a right, brilliant right. way. Yeah, yeah I, I love these books, you know, because they sort of give us, an, they, they help us um, sort of reimagine, you know, what it might have been like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't for a moment, uh, you know, disregard, you know, that some of these writers may be channeling, you know, they may be divinely inspired, you know, as they, you know, help us, you know, reimagine and reclaim and reinvent um, how women can be in the world, you know. Once again, uh, I, I think they're I think they're beautiful, and 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 that's the that's the work that uh, you're doing with the sisterhood as well. Um, hopefully, that's um, that's our goal and our aim, and um, you know, it's our privilege to be able to do that. So yeah, so we draw inspiration from these uh, Celtic snippets because the Celts really didn't write anything down. So they were either written about or the the legends and the the stories existed orally until they were written down in the uh, medieval period. And so then we have to, you know, unlike a lot of um, other cultures where they were able to write about their gods themselves and we have a body of myths, of lore, of prayer, of ritual, um, we don't have that gift people who work in Celtic traditions. And so, especially, I work from a British perspective, so I look at a lot of the Welsh materials, which is where Avalon comes from, which is the, 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 uh, the descendants of the British Celts. Um, you know, so we're looking at medieval writings, and we have to kind of ferret out what was a reflection of contemporary medieval society, what was a reflection of patriarchal Christian overlay, and what was the core that... Um, is the the pagan remnant that might have been transmitted, and um, you know what, where are the seeds of that, and what can we learn from what lies underneath all of those layers? Yeah, and, and sometimes you do have to intuit it or take some creative license, um, you know, so to speak. Um, it, and so now you're also also associated with Glastonbury. Uh, well, we do uh, connect with Glastonbury in, uh, in in many different ways. It's a it's a brilliant space. I know you've gone there. Um, it uh, it's been a sacred space uh, from time immemorial. I mean, the Neolithic peoples it, um, regarded it as such. Uh, we know from archaeological records. Um, you know, into the Celtic British period. You know, we had the the lake villages there. People lived next to it. We don't have any signs of habitation from the Iron Age that we know of yet there, so it seems like they honored the space as an island of the dead, as a sacred precinct, but didn't quite live there. They built um, they built platforms to build their houses on in the lake near it, but didn't live on it that, we can, that we've been able to notice thus far. And then it's the place where Christianity was born in, um, in the British Isles, the first, uh, the first enclave and a very powerful abbey into the medieval period. And uh, today it's the center of goddess spirituality in the UK, of um, many different kinds of spirituality coming together in one place. So we do have some resonance with Glastonbury, but, you know, where Avalon existed 
if there was a historical Avalon, is anybody's guess. But I personally believe that archetypes and energies and symbols become associated with things, with people, with places. And there's Mm -hmm. been such a strong connection between Avalon and Glastonbury. And Glastonbury itself being such a powerful landscape area, it is easy when you are in Glastonbury to connect with Avalon because they're so closely connected now energetically. Right, right. And, um, I mean, I can remember being there, and um, I, I, I purposefully didn't go during the conference or anything like that, you know, because I, I, I wanted to just sort of be there, uh, you know, as a solitary pilgrim, you know. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it, it was an incredible place. Uh, it, mm-hmm. Most most definitely, and uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley's book was not far from my mind. You know, I I mean I can mm-hmm. still see that scene in the movie uh, when the priestess forgets how to part the veils. You know, and wow. she could no longer you know get back to the aisle, and uh, you know, I, and I think that's that's what we're trying to do. You know, we are all trying to remember, and. Um, yes. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so, so Jenna, uh, for someone who is, uh, I mean, is this? Do you sort of uh, you you describe the different levels of involvement? Uh, but if for someone who uh, is maybe a little bit more curious, do you have like your typical, you know, year in a day training? I mean, how does how is it structured? Well, our online community uh, offers many different levels of. Uh, of um, involvement. We have a questing process, which is a three-year process, um, which anyone who is a member can participate in. Um, we have sister-run uh, groups that uh, range between uh, Welsh studies, um, Celtic legends, we have um, uh, divination, all different kinds of arts, you know, Celtic art, artisanship, um, you know, things that get us immersed in the culture so that people can connect with that. So there is that level. We have our seminary, which is only open to members of the Sisterhood of Avalon. Um, so we're training specific, a specific path as opposed to a more generalized um, pagan clergy. Uh, we have in-person trainings, uh, which are all over North America and the British Isles. And then we have our pilgrimage experiences, uh, which we do every year, every other year. Uh, I facilitate some, and we also invite other um, authors who have a connection to the Celtic traditions on one level or another uh, to come and um, to teach. And uh, there's something about, as you know, I'm sure, given your work, being in the landscape connects mm-hmm. you. I, I loved what you said in the introduction. It's the difference between, you know, reading a recipe and tasting the stew. They're, they connect you so closely, so clearly, so profoundly to the archetype, to the energy of the the goddesses that are connected there. And that's especially important for us because, as I said, we don't have a corpus of information about the divinities we work with. So going to the sites that are associated with them open doorways that would not otherwise have been available. So it's oh, I I, I truly think that, and you know, I've uh, back when I did uh, a lot of my sacred travel. Um, uh, I, w- I was fortunate enough to be a part-time travel agent, so it was affordable then. It's it's not really as affordable anymore. So I'm fortunate that I got it done when I could. And um, but but 
that area, you know, Ireland, England, Wales, that is such a potent place. And, you know, it, and I, it was such a surprise to me because I am one that's a little bit more drawn to, you know, Egypt and Turkey, um, you know, got to be some past life stuff there. But even uh-huh. for me, uh, it felt like, um, you know, Ireland in particular was just, just so potent. It, it was a surprise, I guess, uh, is, is what I'm saying. You know, it uh, it was just an incredible, incredible experience. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded how these sacred landscapes can be um, uh, so potent, you know, and, and still give us so much, so much valuable information, you know, if, if we just open ourselves to it. Yeah. Agreed, agreed. Um, well, um, Jenna, what other things... Um, you know, would you like to share with listeners before we uh, before we say good night to you? Well, um, there are a couple of other, if if if, if you don't mind, um, things that the sisterhood uh, strives to do. I mentioned our seminary several times. Education is important. We also have a, a publishing arm, and we've been working on some uh, devotional um, anthologies for the goddesses that we work with. Uh, a lot of them, you know, we work with Welsh goddesses. They are not ones that are uh, particularly, they're, you know, Rhiannon and uh, Ceridwen, but uh, some of the others are not as particularly well-known. And as I said earlier, you know, we, we, go, we come from a, a place of um, looking at the history, looking at the archaeology, looking at the available materials that there are about these divinities and their stories. And then we need to take that layer of patriarchy, of Christianity, off of it to try to get to the heart of um, who these these goddesses and who these women were and what you know lessons they hold for us today, and so these anthologies are our way to kind of share some of the experiences that we've had. So it's a it's a balance between the scholastic and the spiritual. And as as someone who is taking a um, you know a mainstream uh, course, you know, getting my master's degree in Celtic studies, you know, you can't really toss around things lightly and make, you know, overreaching connections between, um, you know, paganism and medieval stuff because there is no straight line. Um, but it is uh, it is lovely to be able to come from a really solid foundation of academics and scholastic integrity and then build upon that to uh, both inform the spiritual work and also honor the culture from which we are getting our spiritual um, inspiration. Because, you know, the Welsh, as I said, uh, the in the Irish today and, you know, the other people who live in Celtic countries, they're descendants. This is a living culture. And I don't want to get into issues of cultural appropriation, but also understanding the culture that birthed the divinities that we're working with, I think is key, especially those of us who don't live there or aren't of that ethnicity. I mean, I, like you said, the Celtic landscape speaks to me. I'm Italian. (laughs) I should not have those connections, right? So there's something about it that draws you, and it's stronger than blood, and it's stronger than you know, location. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look at me, you know, I'm an Isis and Sekhmet priestess, and, you know, I'm certainly not from the Middle East, you know, I, I'm, I, if you looked at me, you'd swear I was, I should have been a Celtic priestess, you know. There you um, go, so, and yeah, so it's kind you, of the reverse for me, I'm all Mediterranean, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, and, and what you're saying, it is important, you know, because I know when I started out as a priestess, you know, it was important for me to know the history, you know, to know the stuff that Merlin's Stone and Rianne Eisler were teaching as well as 
um, you know, the the mystical, you know, as 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 well as um, you know the, the the sort of esoteric, you know, it was it was important that it be grounded, uh, you know, so so that it didn't feel like this was all just a feminist fantasy or something, you know. Right. 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 Yeah. And I have to say, I've been working with the. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Association for the Study of Women in Mythology. They put on these brilliant goddess, feminist, mythological-centered, academic, and also for practitioners, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, conferences and and, uh, symposia every year. And I've had the privilege to present at a few of them. And it's a brilliant resource for women who are interested in uh, reclaiming not only ancient goddesses and, you know, present goddesses and indigenous ways of honoring the divine feminine, but also uh, to revamp scholarship and because mm-hmm. so much of feminist scholarship has been um you know uh pushed to the side by mainstream academia uh this this uh, is a collection a connection between women who are academics and who do embrace feminist ways of looking at materials and saying yes this is just as relevant a perspective as the ones that we see in our mainstream universities so, um, yeah, I, I mean, we've research. seen over and over again how academia will bend itself into a pretzel to not see the feminine in history, yes. you know. Right, exactly. Um, exactly uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm actually, uh, I just decided a few weeks ago after seeing Maleficent, which I thought was kind of an mm. interesting contemporary feminist fairy tale, um, that uh, I'm going to d- devote October to uh, feminist fairy tales, uh, some of them by Barbara Walker, and rereading some of the pre-patriarchal goddess myths that, that uh, I believe it was uh, Cheryl Straffen, uh, oh no, not Cheryl Straffen, sorry, uh, Charlene Spretnak, um, yeah, has, Charlene. was, was writ, you know, wrote in her early book, Lost Goddesses of Early Greece. Um, so if you have anything along those lines that, that you would like to maybe come back and share, um, you know, about the Celtic, uh, you know, Celtic goddesses, pre-patriarchal, please let me know and, uh, you know, I'll put you on the, you know, put you on the calendar. Oh, I'd love to do that. That's a big part of my work. So, yeah, that would be that would be a privilege to be able to discuss that. Absolutely. Yeah, because you know, I I can recall uh, there was a, a a woman a few years back who said she you know said to me, and it really struck me, you know, that she was leaving goddess spirituality because there was no substance, and that really mm. that really got me thinking. You know, uh, you know, well, obviously, so many. Uh, people maybe just aren't looking in the right places. And, um, you know, we really do have to, you know, look at the goddess mythology and uh, see what, you know, the pre-patriarchal stories and see what we can eke out um, and uh, and reclaim it, reinterpret it, so that uh, maybe we can try to restore it to its uh, former glory or at least uh, make it relevant for us today. Oh, I agree. And what you just said is pretty much our, the SOA motto is um, remembering, reclaiming, and renewing. So ah. that just sums up exactly what you just said. So. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Brilliant. I mean, you know, as a, as being interested in Sekhmet, um, you know, I am really interested in rewriting her story because, you know, mm-hmm. she's a goddess who, you know, there's just a dearth of information out there on her. And if someone just picked up one of those stories, they would swear she was a mercenary for the sun god Ra, 
you know, and <laughs> what, what a horrible, you know, way to think about, um, you know, the, you know, beloved mother Sekhmet. And uh, so, yeah, we, we have our work to do. <laughs> oh, I agree. I agree. Several of our goddesses are just as equally maligned. So I am, I am on, on the same page with you. Absolutely. Um, and, who's, and who better to define them than those of us who have built relationships? Yes, yes, I mean, exactly, and I, and I think equally important is to stress to women that, you know, we have to give ourselves permission to do this rethinking, to do this reinterpretation, to be our own spiritual authority, you know, in these cases, because, I mean, let's face it, at some point men decided they were going to do their own thing, so, uh, you know what, uh, it's fine for us to... Uh, you know, do our own reclaiming as well. You know, in fact, we have to. <laughs> yes, yes, we have to make our own institutions. I agree. Yes. Um, so, Jenna, um, are there websites uh, if listeners want to know more about uh, Avalon and the Avalonian tradition or the Sisterhood of Avalon? Yes, the Sisterhood of Avalon has a website. It's sisterhoodofavalon.org. Uh, my website is my name, com. And uh, there are lots of links on both of them uh, for other resources. And uh, uh, the SOA website is really um, quite extensive about our belief system and a lot of different, um, you know, offerings and uh, the things that we're involved with, the things that we support, because um, we, we give a lot back to our community as well. So, yeah, so I think those are the primary things. And we're all on Facebook as well, so people can, you know, join up with us there and, you know, keep up with what we're doing and join the conversation. And you have a very unique spelling of your name, which I just realized now I mispronounced, so you're very gracious not to correct me. Jenna, J-H-E-N-A-H, Telendru, T-E-L-Y-N-D-R-U, for any listeners who may want to find you on Facebook. (laughs) Thank you, yes. I'm used (laughs) to that, so no worries at all. I answer to a whole lot of things. (laughs) <laughs> um, so Gina, um, I, I'm I'm just curious. Uh, any uh, any? What did, you didn't call them groves? Would uh, and you didn't. Call, uh, it, it, what do you call your your groups of women that come together? Hearth. 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 Did you H E A R T H? H E A R T H. Yep. Uh, do you have any hearth? No, go ahead. Hearths are the center of what? Oh, the hearths were the center of the, the Celtic roundhouse. It was the center of the home, and it was the place where women, you know, served their family, served their community, and where they gathered around and where the cauldron hung, you know, to feed both spiritually and metaphorically. So we gather together in hearth groups. Okay, that's, that women. makes have, sense. And we have um, hearths, well, I would... um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> we we uh, anyway. I was just about to ask you if you have any hearths here in Southern California. Uh, we did. We have. We have uh, one forming in uh, the. It's not Southern California in the uh, Cupertino area right now, but uh, it's a okay. little far afield at the moment, I suppose. But yeah. Okay, and you were you were about to say. Oh, I was just. Uh, I was just. You had asked about hearts. I was just going to say that we have we have a lot of them spread out in many places. And if people are interested in finding out more about where our hearts are, you can contact us through Facebook or through our website. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Well, you know, I, I mean, uh, Christianity started in um, women's living rooms. 
you know, we can't forget <laughs> that. Um, you know, as a as a priestess in the Fellowship of Isis, we have Iseums and Lyceums. You have hearts. Uh, I know many women have groves, and we call them all sorts of things. But, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the power of those circles, uh, you know, because, um, you know, it, look, look where Christianity is today. And, you know, I often say uh, to people when I go give talks, you know, those who can't imagine things being different, uh, those who can't imagine us having a different world than what we live in. And, you know, I say to them, you know, if you were a pagan in ancient Rome, you never believed Christianity would ever, you know, become the force it is today, you know. Or think it, think back, it wasn't that long ago that black men couldn't even play baseball. And, you know, what were the chances of having a black or a woman president? You know, things really do change. And uh, I think it's really important that we... Um, or just tenacious and be like water wearing away rock until we make those changes happen. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think the power of these circles of women especially is that we learn to trust other women. We've grown up in a society where we're taught to compete with women, to not trust other women, to size up other women and judge them for how they look or what they wear and things that they do, if they're mothers or go out to work. Coming together in supportive women's circles, that's the, the cornerstone to um, to empowering women to do and make choices and to make those shifts that you're talking about, the shifts that we need. So yeah. it happens within ourselves, relationship with ourselves, relationship with the divine, and relationship with our community and our sisters. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. I mean, we're talking the same language here, you know, solidarity and partnership, mm-hmm. because so often, you know, I think we have a tendency to, uh, divide ourselves. You know, who's the real priestess? Who isn't? Or, you know, or I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, uh, butch, uh, you know, butch, or I'm lesbian, or I'm black, or I'm, you know, I, you know, or I'm fat, or I'm heterosexual. I mean, we so we can subdivide and subdivide and subdivide and subdivide, and we just and you know, pay and, and that plays into the hands of patriarchy. You know, I, you know, I, I think we should be women first. And forget about all the subdivisions we are underneath that umbrella, and uh, and you know get to the business of changing the world. <laughs> A woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gina, thank you so much for being on tonight, and uh, please do uh, get in touch with me in the next couple weeks if uh, there are any uh, you know Celtic goddess myths or fairy tales. Uh, you might like to come on the show uh, later on in the year and uh, share with listeners. That would be great. Oh, I would love that, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you tonight and to share. And, um, yeah, I really appreciate uh, the offer. I will definitely take you up on that. Thank you. Okay. Well, and I'm so glad I found you. So um, so, so ditto there. And uh, let's stay in touch. And uh, now we know uh, we're on each other's radar screens, and uh, and, and that's a good thing. So uh, best of luck to you with all your work and your tours and uh, your seminary and uh, all the incredible work you're doing out there because it's most definitely needed. Well, thank you, and thank you for all that you do and for giving women and in goddess spirituality a voice in this way. So you you, you and your work are very much appreciated, Karen. So oh, thank well, thank you. you so much, and, and good night, okay, and, well, and have a wonderful summer good night. solstice. Okay, bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye now. 
Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed these two wonderful ladies uh, that uh, has been my pleasure to speak to tonight. And I want to let you know that next week I will actually be away on vacation. So at the regular showtime, you will hear from me wearing my priestess cap and collar, uh, but it's not going to be live. It's going to be pre-recorded. Uh, there will be an automatic airing of my Sekhmet meditation in honor of our great mother, the Lady of Tenacity Manifested, in tribute to her during the time of the summer solstice. And remember, listeners, be proud. You are the cognitive minority. Speak out. Help shift the world paradigm by being who you are, walking your talk, believing what you believe. We are the women and men changing the world. And when things feel like they're getting tough, remember the words of 19th century German philosopher, author Schopenhauer. He said, all truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted for being self-evident. Have a great summer, everyone. Uh, Please do tell your friends about Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And if you can spare some change, please go to my website, karentake.com. Go to the Goddess Store page. Uh, Use the PayPal buttons there provided to maybe send a donation to help me keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air. Or buy one of my books. I read you two great reviews tonight, uh, and I hope they may have convinced you to uh, uh, take a look at my books. So uh, next time we uh, get together, it will be July. So have uh, a wonderful time until we are together again. And blessings to you, my sisters and brothers. And as I promised, I am going to go back to uh, Diva Haley's Uh, song, uh, Aphrodite, and uh, we are going to play it in its entirety uh, to honor Aphrodite, goddess of love, as she represents all the goddesses of love out there. Here we go. I'm gonna 